Let me pick up immediately from where we left off as we just think about what it means to live in the last days. This will be relevant for that question that was asked about why you didn't have all three peaks in God's plans dealt with at once. I suppose another way of phrasing a similar question is to ask why there's a delay at all between the beginning or the inauguration of the new age and the day of the Lord when the last days will be over. So you remember that diagram from before, that basically the, the old age is continuing, the new age has already begun, but there's this overlap. Why is there this overlap? We'll turn to Second Peter, chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, but the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Interesting phrase. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is there a delay? Peter is challenging his readers not to reduce God down to their level, not to forget that he is God. So what if it takes 2,000 years? It may take another 10,000 years. Who knows? Does that matter? Does that mean God is not going to do it? Hasn't one of the things that has come through from the day is God has a pretty impressive track record for keeping promises. What makes you think that some of these ones we're waiting for are no less sure? I mean, you know, a thousand years, two thousand years, it's just a walk in the park for God. Yeah, Moses had to wander around looking after goats for 40 years in the wilderness before the whole burning bush thing. But God knew what he was doing. And the reason for the delay is obvious. He is patient and he wants people to repent. He wants people to come to know Jesus Christ. So I, for one, am immensely grateful that Jesus did not return before February 1989. That's when I first came to know him. Because otherwise I wouldn't have been ready for his return. Hands up who's become a Christian in the last five years. No, maybe ten years. Ten years. You relieved? But when will it end? Acts 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Disciples were pretty confused about it, understandably. I mean, this was all so new. This was so mind-changing, revolutionary. And in retrospect, we can see the consistency with the Old Testament and the expectations. But I guess as things were happening and beginning to unfold, it was just like a sort of whirl of events trying to get your head around it all. And I guess, well, certainly for these first disciples, it hadn't occurred to them that there'd be a delay. But Jesus promised, prepared for the last day's experience like this. So verse 6 of chapter 1. So they, when they met together, so this is after the resurrection, of course, before the ascension. When they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What's he been doing? My kingdom is not of this world. But the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I completely understand their question. But it shows they've still got quite a lot to get their heads around, doesn't it? And one of the things they've got to get heads around is this gap between the now and the not yet, between what's begun and what will be completed. Because, yes, the kingdom has begun, but the Romans are still in charge. And if it's not the Romans, it's going to be somebody else. Verse 7, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Don't worry about the times. We've no idea when the last days will end. If you start hearing people saying, right, this means that, and therefore this means that we're definitely going to have the end of the world at this particular point, tell them that they're speaking nonsense because not even Jesus knew. 
We don't know. How many times does the church need to hear that? We don't know. Now that's the case whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill, pan-mill, whatever it is. The point is we don't know when it's going to happen. All we know is that it will happen. That's what matters. And so in the meantime, we're to do what Jesus tells us to do to be ready. Verse 8. Don't just sit down and do nothing. Wait, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. There's a command. How will people repent unless they hear? Be my witnesses. Don't make it up. You're a witness to something else. You're an ambassador to what the master says. You're just a messenger. Often people shoot the messenger. It can be quite a dangerous thing to be the messenger. But that's all we are. And if that seems scary, it is. But he says, look, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. There's a promise. If the history of Israel has taught us nothing other than this, then uh, we've got to get this clear that actually good intentions are not enough to serve God. We need a change of heart. We need God's work to be at, uh, power to be at work in us. And what God demands, he provides time and time again. We have his spirit. That's where the power really shows its face in the fact that people are prepared to stand up in front of a crowd bearing stones or guns or the power of the state and say, Jesus died for you. And because this new covenant age has only partially begun, there is a tension between the now and the not yet. And basically we come to the final session now and we can think about what that tension feels like. To do this in two ways, and basically at one level, this is the hardest talk to try and get right because there are so many different strands of it. We're no longer so much talking about as a narrative as trying to, to, to sum up you know, the life of the Christian according to the New Testament, which is... You know, it, it doesn't follow a very natural pattern. So far, we've just been able to follow the story, and it's been easy, but it sort of breaks out now. So I'm trying to grasp a few threads together. So what is the role of the Spirit? What does he do? Notice I say he, not an it. It's very revealing when people talk about the Holy Spirit as an it. He's God. It's not an it. He's personal. What does he do? Well, and, um, have a look at these passages. See, see if you can summarize what, what are the, the main things that the Holy Spirit does in a person. How else can someone accept such an unworldly idea as the concept that we've rebelled against a creator God? I mean, it just seems crazy, doesn't it? Can't see him, can't smell him or touch him. I don't remember doing it. Do you remember deliberately saying, right, I'm going to reject God? And yet it is something that we have done, but we need the Spirit to be at work to open our eyes to the reality of ourselves as well as the reality of God. So it's not my job as a Christian to convince someone else of the reality of their sin. It's God's job. Now, it doesn't mean I don't talk about sin. It doesn't mean I don't talk about the consequences of sin in someone else's life or my life. But it's not my job to press them and bash them so hard over their head to make them convinced that they're sinners. No, the Spirit does that, and he's much better at it than me. So I don't deliberately try to make someone feel as guilty as I possibly can, hoping that as a result they'll just jump into the arms of Jesus. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that someone can become a Christian. For we're dead in sin, as Ephesians has it. And we need a new birth as Jesus has it in John. We need a resurrection, nothing less. A whole new life. It's no small matter to say that Jesus is Lord and mean it. And if you can say that you are a Christian, 
and you have the Holy Spirit. There are no two-tier conversions in the New Testament. There are no two-tier conversions in the New Testament. If you have the Spirit, you can say Jesus is Lord. If you can say Jesus is Lord and mean it, you have the Spirit. My understanding is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is just yet another phrase amongst a number for conversion. And the Spirit equips. You see, at the Exodus, Israel wasn't just saved, it was saved for worship. In order for them to live for the one true living God, and so it is with a Christian. We now are to serve God, and each Christian has the Holy Spirit, and each Christian, therefore, by definition, has gifts. Each Christian. But gifts are not given for an ego trip. Not always, but sometimes I fear that when people are worried about what gifts they have, it's because they've wrongly understood the purpose of gifts. They're not there to make me feel more loved by God or to make me feel significant, or to make me feel fulfilled or have value. The purpose of gifts, we'll put it this way, sometimes people do this, but it's not a very good idea, is that you know how it is, maybe there's a married couple or whatever, and one of them gives the other a CD that they really want. I never do that. But sometimes, we, well, you know, people do that, don't they? No, 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 no. Now, the whole point is you give somebody a present for them, not for you in a sort of cunning underhand way. <laughs> but the funny thing about God is that the way he gives his gifts is slightly different from the way we give gifts. He gives me gifts for you. And he gives you gifts for me. The gifts I have are not for me, but they're so that I can serve the body. So that I can love you better. So that you can love me better. Because, boy, it doesn't come naturally, does it? We need all the help we can get. Gifts are given to individuals to build up the body. I think that is partly why there is no exhaustive list. And to ask that question is, is actually to miss the whole point. Likewise, I suspect to ask the question, what are my gifts, is also to miss the point. Instead, we should be asking the question, where can I serve? It's a fact that large churches need just as much help as small churches. It's a myth to think that it's only small churches that struggle to find help. I don't know a single area of the church's ministry that year in, year out has enough people here at All Souls. Or at least, you know, maybe the student team will be uh, the right number for a term or two, but then people move on and people, you know, life is so sort of fluid in London, isn't it? And some people, they've no idea whether their job will keep them in London for more than a couple more months. We just don't know. So the team might be okay now, but in three months' time, you suddenly lose four people, and that's devastating. You've got to start all over again. And so it goes on at every level. Someone says, oh, well, you know, looking after toddlers isn't exactly my, my gift. Well, sometimes I just want to ask, how do you know? Have you ever tried? Don't ask what's my gift. Ask how can I serve? And you may find that actually you've got gifts you never knew you had. Now, if you haven't got the gift of toddler's work, don't worry. People will be pretty quick to spot that. And they might say, oh, thanks so much for your help, but please go away. But it's a different mindset, isn't it? The gifts I have, whether I'm aware of them or not, are for you and vice versa. The Spirit loves to see that at work. One of the simplest statements of Christian belief is to say Jesus is Lord. Now, you may think that that's rather a sort of lowest common denominator. But remember the context in which that was first articulated, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, in the situation of the Roman Empire, where it was very clear that Caesar was Lord. It had very strong political connotations. Very dangerous ones. Because if you're saying Jesus is Lord, 
you're saying Caesar is not. And the empire won't like that very much. And that's one of the reasons so many Christians were executed and imprisoned and flogged and banished and exiled. And it's still the case. States do not like anything else that takes precedent. So you're not going to say Jesus is Lord by accident in that situation. Sure, it's pretty easy in Britain at the moment, although it's fast changing to say Jesus is Lord. And most people think, oh, you know, that's private faith and so on. But as you say Jesus is Lord over your life as well, or Jesus is Lord over politics or over sexual ethics or over how we do business, you'll quickly see how politically incorrect it is and how offensive it is and how dangerous it is. You don't say Jesus is Lord by accident, do you, in those situations? It doesn't come naturally makes me quake. It may well be in a very short time in this country that to be a devout Christian, to be a faithful Christian, will entail, it'll demand breaking the law. You're not going to do that by accident, are you? Only by the Spirit. So we need to be pretty sure where our confidence lies, don't we? If we're to live the kingdom values of the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, it's going to be a struggle. We'll fall flat on our face time and time again. I do. I make a complete hash of it. Just ask my wife. What happens when I sin as a Christian? I've been a believer for 18 years. I've sinned rather a lot in that time. What's happened to my salvation? Am I still a believer? It's a pretty relevant question, don't you think? Is that a question you've not asked yourself? Well, to grasp this, Romans 8 is... A mountaintop. Romans 8. There is a guarantee, you see. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Present and future, as on the basis of the past. You see, the same spirit who raised Jesus lives in you and will raise you. Do you see? There's a very clear timetable in mind here. We know that the work he started, he'll carry on to completion, Philippians 1.6. It's the same spirit. If you're impressed by the resurrection, that'll help you, won't it? Because you'll think, yeah, that's coming to me soon. Can't wait. And uh, this leads into what is sometimes called the three tenses of salvation. Some of you will have come across it, I'm sure. Here we are in this strange sort of limbo world of the new age having started but the old age carrying on in the last days. What is it like to live in the last days? Well, just as you would expect, we've got some things but not everything. The now and the not yet. Justification, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What happens if I sin as a Christian? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What happens if I sin tomorrow? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You got the point? Scary stuff, actually. And once you begin to understand it, you start beginning to have people asking the question, well, does it matter if I sin then? Yes. But if and when I sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, in the past, because of what Christ has done in the finished, completed work of the cross, I have complete confidence that there is no condemnation. You see, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am no longer condemned. I am, well, the jargon is justified. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. The punishment has been paid for. But I still sin, even when I've understood that, even when I'm glorying in it, even when I'm thinking, hallelujah, Lord, I still sin. The now and the not yet. Well, I am being saved 
from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit is at work within me. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. I've called this mortification. Putting to death. If Jesus is your Lord, means you do what you're told. It's the whole point, isn't it? He's the boss. He calls the shots. The whole point of sin is that I want to call the shots. The whole point about being rescued from that is I no longer want to call the shots. I want him to call the shots. But it's a battle. It's a struggle. I put to death the sinful nature. And I can't do that on my own. It's interesting. He talks about language of obligation. He says that you know you should... And you have the power in the Spirit. Now, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And in fact, it leads to a constant battle. And I guess if you're feeling discouraged with your walk with God, perhaps you feel you're not really getting anywhere. don't seem to be making the progress you'd hoped for. Well, often the simple reason is actually there has been progress, and other people have noticed you're just finding more stuff that needs to be dealt with that you'd conveniently, inconveniently just overlooked before. It's often, isn't it, the case that um, those who've been walking the Christian walk for 30, 40 years, we can see the work of God in their lives and their godliness and holiness and humility and service-hearted nature. And they will, you ask them, he says, no, I'm the chief of sinners. And they're not just being falsely modest. It's simply because actually... You know, the Spirit has gradually been clearing out the attic and, you know, clearing the mess out of the cellar and gradually working his way through the house. And if you think you're doing okay, it's probably because the Spirit hasn't really got to work on you yet. So we do need one another occasionally to say, no, actually, I've really noticed a difference. You know, I, you know, we all know that we don't get it all right. But it's great sometimes, and I think we should do this more often for one another. He says, you know, you're such an encouragement to me because I've really seen that you're, you're battling away at this. God is at work. And the fact that there is a struggle at all indicates something very important, doesn't it? That there are two sides. If there was no struggle, well, there's one side, isn't there? Just go that way every time. Sometimes go the wrong way, but there's a tension, isn't there? There's a battle. A tug of war. If the spirit wasn't there, I'd sort of keel over every time. That's quite encouraging in and of itself, isn't it? Well, I'm encouraged. If you're not, that's your problem. The Spirit gives us power to fight. I have been saved from the penalties of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. Finally, I will be saved from the presence of sin. And what a day that'll be. Glorification. When I'll be in my glorious body. Verse 18 of Romans 8. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The day will come for glory. An awesome, wonderful, incredible day. Perfection with Christ. We'll be able to enjoy all the blessings which Christ gave to us. I will be saved from the presence of sin. No tears, no suffering, no sickness, no sin. I've got some aspects of heaven now, but not of all. The process has begun, but I'm not there yet. Don't expect the glories of heaven to be fully experienced in this life. If you do, you will either go into a period of total denial of reality 
or you'll become totally crushed and discouraged. If you hear people talking about the victory life and as leading a sinless life, you can be sure that the only people they're conning are themselves. Because everyone around them will recognize their sin pretty quickly. Why is it that Paul has to keep writing? We don't have an obligation to the sinful nature. Why is it that the New Testament is so full of encouragements, of of exhortations, of encouragements to keep living for God? Because it's hard and because naturally we don't, even those of us who've been walking with the Lord for years. It's a battle and it'll continue that way until the day we die and be with Christ. If you like, that's the sort of individual. But we can't leave it there. Because actually, there is a whole experience corporately to think about. I think this is a classic weakness in the Western church. Many of you will be all all the more aware of it than me, even. We've got to understand that actually we are part of a people. We are not islands. We are a kingdom of interconnected and interdependent believers of one body. Have a look at these passages just for a few minutes and just see what it's like. What does it mean to be in the people of God? I don't have time to go into all the details. But it's very interesting how the New Testament uses the language that's describing the people of God in the Old Testament to describe the church. So we saw those verses in 1 Peter before. Deliberately using Old Testament names for the people for the church, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, with the same pattern as in Exodus, as we saw. Then it's fascinating, isn't it? Temple language is no longer tied to a building. It's tied to both the individual believer and the church of believers. I individually and you individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, but so are we when we're together. This building is a beautiful building. I love the building of all souls, but it's just a building. It is not the church. It's not holy ground. This is not the burning bush. It's just a very useful building to meet in that just happens to be rather nice. It's a rain shelter. But that's it. And if we no longer can meet in this building for whatever reason, that doesn't make any difference. We're still the church of all souls. That's rather a sort of static image. A more lively sort of biological one is that of being the body. We are Christ's body, equipped to function here on on earth in service of Christ, as his agents, if you like, his ambassadors. And finally, in Revelation, the bride of Christ. We're engaged. And engaged couples long for their wedding day. And that's, as Christians, how we should think. I can't wait, can you? But what's it going to be like as we live in these last days? Well, Jesus warned us. Matthew 24, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when this will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, there's the same question again. And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ. And they'll deceive many. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars. You'll see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. It's bracing stuff, isn't it? It's not for the faint-hearted. Why do you think Jesus teaches this? When was the last evangelistic sermon that used this as the gospel appeal? 
It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Come to Jesus and you'll be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by everybody. Come to Jesus. Did you take that into account when you came to Jesus? No, no one ever said following Jesus was a picnic. You just have to talk to a Muslim who's become a Christian to get a taste of what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, the college I taught at in Uganda, we had a number of students from Sudan. And the reason they were in Uganda is precisely because of the situation of Islam in Sudan and how Christians have to handle that. Some of those wonderful and godly Christians I've ever met. But they would read these words and say, yeah, it's pretty much how it is. There isn't actually a time in history when Christians haven't been persecuted and executed somewhere. The last few decades in England are pretty unusual. They're not guaranteed to last, and actually, I doubt they will. But it's not all doom and gloom, because we have great privileges. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We have amazing privileges. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that's his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God... These are our privileges. We have confidence. We have access. Therefore, let us, verse 22, draw near with assurance, assured of being cleansed. Secondly, let us hold unswervingly to our hope because he is faithful. This is a book about hope, trusting God to keep his promises. Let us consider to, how to spur one another with love and good, to, uh, on to love and good deeds. Let us think of one another and say, yes, it's going to be tough. I need you. You need me. Let's pull each other along to keep going. We know it's hard, but that's why we need one another. So verse 25, let's not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, if meeting together entails possibly having a gun against your head, then that's going to be pretty hard to keep meeting, isn't it? And yet it's astonishing how Christians have this peculiar habit of trying to keep meeting together, even just in handfuls in someone's living room, because we need one another. Do you see what Hebrews has done? The writer has applied the imagery of the temple and the Day of Atonement and applied it to every believer and said, you can do this every day, whenever you want, whenever you need. We have access, we have cleansing, we have confidence, we have assurance. So guys, let's do it. Why not? But of course there's something missing, isn't there? And that is that we're not there yet. Turn back to Romans 8. We're very near the end now. Verse 22. Paul superbly captures the idea of the tension between the now and the not yet. Romans 8.22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but also we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits now. It's an image from the harvest. And the first fruits, so you have a sort of little nibble of the harvest, and that tells you how it's going to be. Well, we've got a little nibble, if you like, of the harvest of God. And boy, is it good. The Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the harvest that was to come on the last day. He is our guarantor of heaven. Because this is no average, unpredictable harvest. This is the harvest that God himself will reap. We know where we belong to change the metaphor, we know where our citizenship is held. 
as people indelt by the Holy Spirit, we now have passports belonging to the royal kingdom of heaven. I am first a Christian, not British, American, Ugandan, or anything else. I am first a Christian, and I bear the passport of heaven. But in the meantime, I am in exile, and I'm desperate to get home. Which is why Paul points to the common experience of Christians being that of groaning and frustration, like the child in the back seat who keeps on saying, Are we there yet? We want to get home. And it's frustrating not to be there. And if you're feeling frustrated, then you're in remarkably good company. In fact, if you're not frustrated, it probably shows that you're not that confident about heaven or you're not that interested in it. I would suggest that there's something actually quite godly about being frustrated by this. It shows where your heart lies. What's going to happen on the last day? We've thought about the last days, but what about the last day itself? Well, Revelation 20 says that Jesus will judge One of the most uncomfortable things about Jesus is that he talks about hell and judgment more than anybody else in the Bible. It doesn't quite fit with the popular image of Jesus being gentle, meek, and mild. Look at the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 25, the bridesmaids, the talents, the sheep and the goats. They're all about him being the judge. Jesus is black and white. There is no fence to sit on. You're either in or you're out. This is not George Bush speaking. It's the Lord of the universe. And the defining question is this, are you ready? It's a rather unsettling question. The question is, how do you get ready? I wonder what you're thinking to yourself, am I ready? Well, how you answer shows whether you've understood the gospel or not. If you're thinking, well, I'm trying to do this, and I do go to church every week, and I try to get to my fellowship group at least once a month, and yeah, I've been telling my friends at work recently, then you're not ready. The person who is ready is the person who trusts Jesus' death for them. Because that is the only means by which I will stand in God's presence. Are you ready? Well, I trust Jesus. Then you are. And as a result of trusting him, he'll write your name in the book. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, Revelation 20:15, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Because the wages of sin is death. You can either pay the price on your own, or there can be one death in place of another. He died for you. Do you trust him? Is that enough for you, or do you think there needs to be something else? If we don't want God in our lives, then God, in a terrifying act of graciousness, gives us what we want, which is hell. It's to be separate from him. I'm not going to get too worried about what constitutes hell, what it's like, and so on. I think that's a red herring. It's just a reality, and the reason I know it's a reality is because Jesus said it. He took the punishment on the cross in my place because of it. If it wasn't a reality, don't you think he wouldn't have done that? He endured hell precisely so that we would not have to. He endured hell so that we might enjoy heaven forever. Are you ready? Is your name in the book? You can't write it in yourself, but those whose name is in the book will be home. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for God, Lord God, will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must, must soon take place. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream. This is what must soon take place. I wonder if you notice what John sees in his vision. He sees a vision of the city of Jerusalem. But look, there right in the middle is this tree of life. Does that ring any bells? The tree in the garden. The tree of life in Eden had been barred. There had been a flashing sword, an angel saying, no further, no entry. It is impossible for a rebel against God to come into the presence of God and live. Because the wages of sin is death. But if sin is dealt with, there is nothing stopping us from taking of that tree. So this is a true garden city, a city with a river and a tree flowing down the middle. Not the tree, the river. But it's picture language. We're not meant to try and draw it. Revelation is not designed to, to, you know, be, you know, set us an exercise in trying to draw the sort of street plan. That's not the point at all. We're meant to understand it, not imagine it. And in this city, there's healing for the nations. There is no longer any curse. In other words, the after effects, the consequences of the fall have been reversed. God is at the center. He is the focal point. Yet again, the lamb now on the throne with God, they will serve forever, live forever. And we will serve forever as we were created to do. And we will see his face and have total access It's a tangible reality. This isn't sitting on clouds, twanging guitars with rainbow straps or anything like that. This is a physical, tangible world where we will have real, physical resurrection bodies. And many people will need to completely revise their expectations of the future. This is not going to be boring. The problem is it's impossible to conceive of eternity without thinking boredom, isn't it? But it's a wonderful future. We will live life and live it to the full. All the things that cause frustration have gone. The life that is the now and the not yet is now the completely now. And a friend summed it up by thinking of all the things that will not be there, and they all begin with S, which is rather nice. There is no sin. There is no sickness. There is no suffering. There is no solitude. There is no sun, as in the sun in the sky, because our light comes from God. There is no school. Because we won't need anyone to teach us, just as Jeremiah prophesied, everyone will know the Lord personally. I won't have a job there. I can't wait. Do you see the conclusion of the matter? In heaven, God's people will be in God's place under God's rule. Eden will be restored, but though this is hard to understand, it's going to be even better than perfection. Eden was perfect, but this is going to be even better. He's redeemed the city as well, the city of God that comes down from on high to the earth. It's not going up to be with heaven. It's the exact opposite. Heaven comes down to us, if you like. And it'll be an improvement on perfection since Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, will be on the throne and we will praise and worship him forever as both a created people and also a redeemed people which ratchets up the reasons for praise, doesn't it? Revelation 4, you have worthy is God for all that he has made. Revelation 5, you have worthy is the lamb that was slain. We praise him for creation and redemption. But there are two things I want to do as I finish. First is to read you a story. 
for the first and only time, it's not in the Bible. It's from Narnia. The last few pages of the last battle. Peter, Edmund, come and look, come quickly. And they came and looked, for their eyes also had become like hers. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's, it's, it's England. And there's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home in the country, where all our adventures began. I thought that house had been destroyed, said Edmund. So it was, said the fawn. But you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. Suddenly, they shifted their eyes to another spot, and then Peter and Edmund and Lucy gasped with amazement and shouted out and began waving, for there they saw their own father and mother waving back at them across the great deep valley. It was like when you see people waving at you from the deck of a big ship when you're waiting on the quay to meet them. How can we get, to get at them, said Lucy. That's easy, said Mr. Tumnus. That country and this country, all the real countries are only spurs jutting out from the great mountains of Aslan. We only have to walk along the ridge, upward and inward, till it joins on. And listen, there is King Frank's horn. We must all go up. And soon they found themselves all walking together. A great, bright procession it was, up towards mountains higher than you could ever see in this world, even if they were there to be seen. But there was no snow on these mountains. There were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other, going up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrow all the time, with a deep valley on each side. And across that valley, the land which was the real England grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. And Lucy saw that a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. And then she forgot everything else. Because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. And the very first person whom Aslan called to him was Puzzle the donkey. You never saw a donkey look feebler and sillier than Puzzle did as he walked up to Aslan. And he looked beside Aslan as a small as a kitten looks beside a St. Bernard. The lion bowed down his head and whispered something to Puzzle at which his long ears went down. But then he said something else, at which the ears perked up again. The humans couldn't hear what he said either time, but then Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, Aslan, we're so afraid of being sent away, and you send us back into our own world so often. There's no fear of that. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope suddenly rose within them. Aslan said softly, there was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and yet which every chapter 
is better than the one before. But we're not there yet. But we remember, don't we, that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what do we do? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God's track record is pretty good, don't you think? Can you trust him to keep his promises? Endure. Because you know it's not going on forever. The frustration, the pains, and the difficulties, they're not interminable. The end is in sight. I don't know how long it'll be, but the end is in sight. We cry to the Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. We can't wait. But there's a job to be done. And we endure as we seek to witness to him and enable others to share that hope in a world that is so lacking in hope. To paraphrase Hebrews lightly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that endures because he who promised is faithful.